welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 120 for the second part of November 2014. The topic I'm going to talk about today is the cometary ideas of James McCanny. James makes a lot of claims, and he's been making them for over 30 years. He places his own origin story as back in the days of the Voyager spacecraft encounters with Jupiter, when he saw the data coming back, and even though real scientists had very good ideas about what they were seeing, James thinks that they actually had no idea about what they were looking at. But it could all be explained by electrical discharges. But when he tried to talk about his ideas, he quickly met with derision. And censorship, as he tells it. After all, this was very soon after Carl Sagan had just quote-unquote buried Emanuel Velikovsky's ideas. Being a neo-Velikovskian, or neo-Velikovskyite, where McCanny believes in much of Velikovsky's ideas but wraps them into an electric universe model, McCanny was immediately relegated to the fringe, where he's been ever since. Also, for what it's worth, he is Professor McCanny. He does not have a doctorate. He has an MS in nuclear and solid-state physics. Practically every time he's introduced on the Coast to Coast AM radio program, he's introduced as a professor of physics and or mathematics at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. However, from his own biography, he was simply an introductory instructor of physics for a year or two before he was fired for his beliefs. He was then picked up by the mathematics department as an instructor before he was fired again after about a year and a half. He therefore hasn't been affiliated in any way with Cornell for over three decades. For the entire time I've been alive, he has not worked at Cornell. Now, maybe it's just me, but I do consider including it as part of your short bio and making it sound as though it's a current job pretty misleading. McCanny has ideas about pretty much everything astronomy, but they can mostly be boiled down to the idea that everything NASA says is wrong, everything conventional science says is wrong, and it's a conspiracy that's keeping it the dominant view. McCanny has ideas that span a very large area of astronomy, but really it can mostly be wrapped into the electric universe model. As we discussed in episodes 115 and 116, there really is no such thing as quote-unquote the electric universe or EU model, but rather there are many different ideas that adherents hold. The only unifying philosophy is that most phenomena in the universe are not due to gravity and chemistry, but they're due to electricity. Different adherents to EU extend this to everything from the vast Vallis Marineris Canyon system on Mars to the structures of superclusters of galaxies. In James McCanny's case, this is mostly applied to comets. Secondarily, it's applied to space weather, as in our sun's solar wind and what it does to objects in the solar system. For about the last decade, McCanny has mostly been on Coast to Coast AM as a brief hour news guest, less often as a full first hour guest to talk about the latest solar flares, and then least often as a three hour guest for the last three hours at the show to talk about whatever his latest work is. This episode is going to use a lot of clips of him stating his claims. Most of this episode is going to talk about his ideas related to comets, but I may mention a few other things as well. In the next episode, I'll talk about his non-comet ideas.
You wouldn't know it by looking at his book titles, which I'll get into later, but James McCanney is best known for his EU ideas regarding comets. He has many, many different ideas about comets that are simply wrong, as I'll explain in a bit, but here is his primary one, which I'll let him state in his own words. Jim, what's your theory on comets and how they're formed? Well, this is a discharge of the solar capacitor. Any object within the solar capacitor is discharging it, and comets do uh, create this discharge more so because they're in elliptical orbits. But basically, the the discharge then, uh, part of the discharge is an electron stream coming out from the sun, which charges up the nucleus to a negative potential. That pulls in the positively charged material, which forms the tail. And so you have hydrogen and oxygen atoms coming in, for example. They combine to form water, and that's why there's water in the tail area. You have carbon and hydrogen atoms that come in and form, and that's what forms the organics, uh, etc. The nitrogen, uh, nitrogen is out there, so it's forming with hydrogen to form uh, uh, organic molecules, etc. So these molecules are forming in the tail as the atomic material is being drawn in. It's also drawing in dust. The small comets are not massive enough to hold much of this material, so some of that gets blown out in the solar wind, and that's what fools comet scientists into believing that that it's coming from the nucleus, but direct observation of the nucleus showed that there was nothing coming off the nucleus going out to form a tail. McCanny's thesis is that practically everything we see in the solar system is due to a discharging of the solar capacitor, as in the sun is a capacitor, meaning that it stores electricity, which I'll get more into in the next episode. And other stuff is a manifestation of that electricity being discharged, like static electricity or lightning. As such, comets are manifestations of that electricity. And for some reason, that means to James that they cannot be dirty snowballs, despite the fact that snow, or at least water, is a pretty good conductor of electricity. But what James says is that they can't be dirty snowballs, which... The dirty snowball model is that a comet is primarily made of ices with rock and other material thrown in. That's why it's dirty. Why exactly mainstream science won't ever acknowledge this deals with conspiracy, which I'll also get into later more in the next episode. But the primary manifestation of his core belief system is that comets are rocky bodies, and they're hot, and they have no water. To quote Phil Plate, to whom McCanny refers to as a disinformation agent, among other less nice things, quote, Well, McCanny is wrong. You'd better get used to hearing that sentence. End quote. So then the obvious question is, how could you possibly tell? Why do scientists claim that comets are cold and icy while McCanny claims they are hot and rocky? The answer has to do with spectroscopy. I've discussed spectroscopy somewhat before, so the short version is that you take the light from an object and you split it into a lot of colors. If I were to take just the visible light from a piece of blue construction paper and split that light with a prism, there would be a lot of blue and very little of anything else. Scientists use much more precise instruments, but the idea is really that simple. Separate out the light to see what colors are strongest or weakest, or the relative intensity of all the wavelengths relative to each other. Let's take the sun as an example. 
If you separate out its light, you're going to get a lot of brightness, but at certain colors, or more precisely, at certain wavelengths of light, you're going to see significant drops in the amount of light at that wavelength. Those drops come from atoms and molecules that absorb the very specific wavelength or color of light. Then we can take pure elements and molecules in the lab and look at what specific colors they give off when heated. Instead of an absorption spectrum, which is what you get with the sun because it's absorbing some of those colors, what we'd have when we heat up an atom or a molecule in the lab is an emission spectrum. This means that we're going to see a lot of dark because these atoms and molecules are only going to emit light at very specific wavelengths. And so you're going to see a lot of dark with then brightness in very few but very specific colors of light. This is the spectral fingerprint of that atom or molecule. This has been done with every element, at least every element that is reasonably stable, and it's been done with a huge number of molecules on Earth. And as such, we have a very, very large library of what all of these atoms and molecules spectra look like. With that library in hand, we can then go back to the spectrum of the sun and match it up. If we see a very strong absorption feature in the sun at, say, 589.0 and 589.6 nanometers, which is yellow light, then that is exactly what we get from sodium in the lab. And so we know that there is sodium in the sun. It gets a lot more complex when you add in more atoms, and then especially molecules, because molecules have a lot more spectral lines. Similarly, minerals are also pretty complicated, and crystals are also complicated when you have minerals crystallizing in different ways. But it's the same basic process. We measure the spectrum in the lab and then compare those libraries of spectra with what we record with spectrometers in the field. For example, when you hear about the latest rock on Mars that the rovers have found and it likely contains X mineral, say, uh, plagioclase feldspar, that's what's going on. They've looked at the spectra and compared it to libraries, this time of minerals, and looked for which minerals match best, in this case, plagioclase feldspar. We do the same thing with comets. This is where I have to fall back on what I commonly say to really outlandish claims. Scientists aren't stupid. They have been looking at the spectra of objects in the solar system for literally centuries, including comets. Comets best match the spectrum of ices with some rock thrown in. It's not some vast, giant conspiracy where this is subjective and we have to hide data and so no one can know the truth. This is something that we did when I taught introductory astronomy for non-majors. We looked at the spectra of comets and compared it to spectra we got in the lab of ices and common rocks. So that's what it gives us. It gives us that comets are mostly made of ices with some rock, or in other words, dirt, thrown in. This in itself is a crucial blow to his models because the idea of comets not being made of water is a key part of his ideas. Along with that comes temperature. McCanny requires that comets not only be rocky and not icy, but that they be hot and not cold. He's wrong. This is again something that comes back to spectra. The light emitted by objects, and I'm talking about every object in the universe here because every object emits light and that light can be used to determine the temperature. 
This was something determined again over a century ago, and explaining why it could be used to determine temperature was what led Max Planck to be one of the founders of quantum mechanics. It's called blackbody radiation. As I said, every object that has a temperature emits light. That light will follow a characteristic curve called a blackbody radiation curve, which is the amount of light on the vertical axis versus wavelength of light on the horizontal axis. Hotter objects emit more light overall, and the maximum wavelength of light that the object, the hot object emits, is only determined by temperature. With hotter objects, that wavelength is shorter because shorter wavelengths of light are higher energy. Conversely, a relatively cold object will emit most of its light at longer, redder wavelengths, and it will emit less light overall. In fact, we can actually use a very, very simple equation called Wien's Law, or possibly Wien's Law, because I think he's German, to determine what the temperature of the object was that emitted a black body spectrum based on where the peak wavelength of light is in that spectrum. And we can measure this. And we do measure this. I've never done this in an introductory physics class or astronomy class, but this is still a rather trivial measurement that physicists have been making for over a century. It's also, if you have one of those $20 or get more expensive, but I have a, I think it's a $30 infrared instant read thermometer, that's how they work. They measure the wavelengths of light, a couple in key locations in the infrared, and they basically plot up a black body spectrum, determine where the peak is, and that peak gives them the temperature. That's how they do it. And as I said, physicists and astronomers have been doing this for decades if not over a century. And we've been doing it on astronomical objects as opposed to just testing whether or not the stove is hot enough to cook an egg. In astronomical objects, we've done this with planets and stars and other things, but we've also done it with comets. While there will be a reflectance spectrum from sunlight bouncing off the comet that gives us the composition, there's also going to be another signal in the spectrum, and that's going to be at longer, lower energy wavelengths, and that peak wavelength of light corresponds to a temperature of under 200 kelvins, well below the freezing point of water. So again, by just taking the spectrum of a comet, you can determine not only its composition, but you can also determine its temperature. Therefore, comets are cold and icy, but he still denies it. Bottom line is, with all the pictures of comets we have now, there's no ice there. There's no snow. They're hot, dry rocks, and uh, they they simply uh, so soon. I think the the wall is going to break down, and I'm not sure what's going to cause that. But uh, I certainly keep pounding on it. That was from 2007, which is misleading to be generous, because by that point we hadn't just made these measurements remotely from Earth. By then, we had sent several space probes to comets, and since then, we've sent even more. These include the European Gyoto to Comet Halley, NASA's Deep Impact to Comet Temple 1, and just last few weeks, the European Rosetta mission to Comet 67P Shuryamov Gerasmenko. And I'm just going to say that that's how you pronounce it and move on from there. Uh, those three missions are from memory, and when I looked up the list of successful flyby missions and other missions to comets, it's actually much larger. In total, Earth has had 12 successful spacecraft visit 12 different comets. 
All of these have had instruments to measure at least some of the composition of the comets, as well as temperature and other things. And they have all measured water. For example, Giotto's results showed that 80% of the material being emitted by comet 1P Halley was water. The same thing happened with deep impact into comet 9P Temple 1, which found literally thousands of tons of water ejected when the companion struck the comet to make a crater and then the flyby craft measured the composition of the material that was kicked up. When asked about this on Coast to Coast AM, James McCanney said, There's no water there. Unfortunately, there's nothing else to go on in this case or accuse him of misunderstanding. It's simply pure denialism. We also observed the deep impact event in telescopes on Earth and in Earth orbit. However, he also refused to accept that. In the news release, they are taking uh, what you call second-level data and interpreting it and saying that there was 250,000 tons of water. Uh, using X-ray data from a remote telescope that was near Earth, actually. Uh, so the bottom line is, did they see this water? No. Did they see it come off the nucleus? No. And the other point is, uh, they saw this between 5 and 13 days after the impact. So what they did is detected X-rays and interpreted it as saying, hmm, that must mean there's more water there. That must mean it came out of the hole that we created with the impactor. And all of this supposition is a big, big stretch of somebody's imagination. This is more complicated, and it's not as directly a case of just denialism. Rather, it's a case of not understanding the research. That's why you have me. The point of the research was that scientists had used an X-ray telescope that detected X-rays at exactly the energy expected for the solar wind to be interacting with water, H2O, or carbon dioxide, CO2, in the neutral coma, the coma being the head of the comet, which would be material liberated from the impact event and melting. Remember, when you're going to slam a projectile into something, besides throwing out debris, it's going to cause a lot of heat, and that heat can last for quite a while. In this case, the deep impact event was measured to produce heat that lasted about 12 days. This is based on the brightness of the x-rays that they measured over that period of time. In terms of how they found out whether it was water and carbon dioxide that was liberated, well... They used spectral libraries of those kinds of interaction and found matches that best matched water and carbon dioxide, both of which would have been frozen as ices on the comet first. The astronomers also measured the light curve of the X-rays, as in the brightness with time, to find that it continued to increase after the impact and then decrease after the heating dissipated. To quote from Universe Today, quote, Temple 1 is usually a rather dim, weak comet with a water production rate of 16,000 tons per day. However, after the deep impact probe hit the comet, this rate increased to 40,000 tons per day over a period of 5 to 10 days after impact. Over the duration of the outburst, the total mass of water released by the impact was 250,000 tons. If we go back to McCanny's statement, it's either completely misreading the research and press releases, or again, simply being a denier. I don't really see a way out of that dichotomy. 
The conclusion that I draw from this and the dozens of other interviews I listened to and material I read is that James McCanney will use pretty much any excuse he can come up with, including possibly lying about the results or at least choosing to woefully misinterpret them in order to maintain that comets are not made of a lot of ice. But besides his claims about the makeup of comets, he has a couple different claims about comets' tails. One of them is that Noah's Flood, where it rained for about 40 days and 40 nights, according to the Judeo-Christian Bible, which he wholeheartedly believes, was because of a comet's tail. That's right, we were just passing through the tail of a comet for 40 days and nights. Some quick math shows that Earth's orbit takes it approximately 103 million kilometers in 40 days. That's very, very roughly the distance between the Sun and Venus. It's not unheard of for a comet tail to be that long, but unless somehow that comet was pretty much exactly in the same orbit as Earth, and therefore we were traveling straight down through that tail, it's practically impossible for a comet's tail to be that wide. They're usually only on the order of about 100 kilometers wide, not 103 million kilometers. That's why meteor showers last an evening and not a month. I'm not saying that it's impossible, it's just incredibly unlikely. But then there's also the aspect that if you're going to go the God route anyway, why not just go the God route? Why do you have to have it make scientific sense? Why do you have to have a scientific explanation? Another of his ideas dealing with cometary tales is that their direction is all wrong for the conventional dirty snowball explanation. The uh, comet tail, for example, is the wrong direction for uh, something coming off the comet. The, the tail is the wrong direction. It's like if you looked at a smokestack and there was smoke coming out in a light breeze, and, and the, the, tail, uh, the smoke was going in the wrong direction, you'd say, something's wrong here. There's something else is going on. Before I go for the first repeating phrase that James McKenney is wrong to explain why, I'll repeat the other phrase that I said that I'll be saying in this episode and the next. Scientists aren't stupid. This seems like an incredibly obvious thing to notice, and if the conventional explanation can't explain the tail direction, then it should be immediately obvious to any astronomer that it's wrong and we need a different model. With that said, comets usually have two primary tails, a dust tail and a gas tail. Remember, comets are dirty snowballs, as we've already established with spectroscopy and direct measurements from landing on them and orbiting them and flying by them and crashing things into them and measuring what comes up. Therefore, when they get close enough to the sun that the surface ices are going to start to melt, they'll be released as gases. The ice actually doesn't melt. It goes directly from a solid to a gas. This is a process called sublimation. If it were to go from a solid to a liquid, that would be melting. Melting to gas would be evaporation. But solid to gas directly without going through melting, don't pass go, don't collect 200, or I would always sneak an extra bit. No, no, I didn't actually. Um, when you go directly from a solid to a gas, that is sublimation. It's just like dirty snow melting on Earth as well. As the snow melts, it's going to free up that dirt. That's also why comets tend to be dark on their surfaces, because it concentrates the dirt as the ices evaporate. But some of that dirt is going to be released. It's going to be taken off the nucleus of the comet, the actual solid body, with the 
ice turned to gas that's being released as well, that dirt then is going to form a dust tail. The way this works is that both the dust and the gas are going to effectively go into, not really orbit, but they're going to form a cloud around the nucleus. This cloud is called a coma or a head, and it's, it's like an atmosphere. And this is what's going to be really bright, assuming the comet is bright, and actually visible when you think of a comet. This is also why comets can be said to be really, really big. Um, comet Holmes, a few years ago, was said to be as large or larger than the planet Jupiter. It's not that the nucleus itself, which is maybe only a few kilometers across, is as large as the planet Jupiter. It's that the coma, this very tenuous atmosphere of dust and gas, is going to be really, really big. Saying that the comet itself is that big is sort of like saying the smoke cloud from a cigarette is really the cigarette itself, and therefore the cigarette is really, really big. It doesn't really make sense to say that, but that's another aspect of some of McKinney's philosophies. With that said, so we have the coma in this uh, atmosphere-like thing around the nucleus, and the coma is made of very, very small particles. These particles are going to get pushed by the sun. But each particle of dust is much heavier than each molecule of gas. As particles stream out from the sun, they hit the dust and the gas in the coma. The dust is going to get pushed from the coma and the nucleus in the direction of the streaming particles from the sun. In other words, it's going to get pushed away from the sun. But because the dust particles are heavy, it takes a lot of solar wind particles to hit the dust particles to get them into a tail. Because of this, the dust tail points away from the sun, but not directly away from the sun. It tends to curve back in the direction from where the comet came. Therefore, if you see a comet in the sky with two tails, the one that's slightly curved is made out of dust. The gas tail is very different. These are much lighter molecules and atoms, and they're in the coma, and after interacting with the solar wind, they become ionized. This means that they lose electrons, and they have a net charge. This means that they're now subject to the sun's magnetic field. As a result, the gas tail will point directly away from the sun. So when you see a comet in the sky and it has two tails and there's one tail that's straight, that straight tail is the gas tail. So to summarize, the conventional view is that comets are dirty snowballs and as they get close to the sun, the ices turn into a gas that takes some dirt with them, forming the coma, or the head of the comet. The solar wind pushes the dust particles into a tail that aims generally away from the sun, but curves back in the direction the comet came from because the dust is heavy. The gas becomes ionized and follows the sun's magnetic field lines, so the gas tail is always straight away from the sun. This means that as comets return to the outer solar system, they chase their tails. The tail goes first and the head follows because that's the direction the sun's pushing the tails. That's what we see, and that's the conventional explanation. There is no mismatch between the conventional explanation and the conventional model, despite what James McCanny says. Therefore, McCanny is wrong on this point. A third claim about cometary tails, and the last one that I'm going to address in this episode, is that comet tails create a drag force which slows them down and circularizes their orbits. This is a very important part of the overall model because of its relation to comet sizes and Planet X. 
James McCanny believes that there are lots of Planet X's out there and that they are comets and that comets grow and become huge and eventually circularize their orbits to become regular planets, which is what Venus did that I'll get to in the next episode. The point of this claim for this particular episode is that I'm going to talk about the mythical force of tail drag. I say it's mythical because it kind of is. There is zero evidence for it, and he pretty much made it up. His claimed evidence, other than arguing from final consequences, in that it has to exist so that his ideas about comets turning into planets can be real, has to do with what happened to Comet Hale-Bopp in the 1990s. In 1996 specifically, Comet Hale-Bopp changed its orbit. To quote from McCanny's book entitled Planet X, Comets, and Earth Changes, from page 52, quote, the huge comet Hale-Bopp had its orbit reduced from 4,200 years to 2,650 years in one passage of the sun. The dirty snowball, quote, jetting concept, end quote, could not account for this amazing change in orbit, end quote. This is an example of misleading the audience. The only thing that's correct is the observation that the orbital period changed from 4,200 years to 2,650 years. It's then very misleading to say that the dirty snowball jetting concept can't be used to explain it. It's like me saying, I opened the door to my house to the outside, and it got colder in the house. But the concept of fans moving air can't explain that temperature change, therefore fans don't exist. Yes, my example may sound somewhat contrived, but that's the setup. It's a false dichotomy. A conventional model that has nothing to do with this particular phenomenon, gasp, it didn't have anything to do with this phenomenon. Therefore, my crazy theory, my crazy idea, must be right. When in fact, what went on is simple gravity. In April of 1996, Comet Hale-Bopp passed close enough to Jupiter for Jupiter to significantly modify its orbit. That's what happened. That's all that happened. Simple gravity from a massive planet acting on a comet changed that comet's orbit a little bit. It has nothing to do with the comet's tail. It has no requirement to invent some new force or phenomenon to explain it. Simple gravity did it. But besides that, we can look to, well every single comet and watch their orbits. If, when they have large tails, their orbits change the most, then McCanny would be right. But that's not what we see, and McCanny doesn't even make that claim. So, McCanny is wrong. Again. Oh, and there are lots of cases where a comet's orbital period has increased, as opposed to decrease, which can't happen with tail drag. As a completely gratuitous side note, James McCanny also thought that Comet Hale-Bopp was, quote, the big one, and as big as the moon, but then he realized that the big one was following Hale-Bopp and should come by about 10 years after. That would have put the event at happening roughly seven years ago, as I record this episode. Funny, but I, I don't really remember that happening. And as for stuff following Hale-Bopp, Early next year, I'll be doing probably a two-part episode on how guests on Coast to Coast AM may have contributed to the suicide of the Heaven's Gate cult who believed in the non-existent object following Hale-Bopp that guests on Coast to Coast claimed existed. Moving further along in this already 50% longer than last episode episode, another core part of James McCanny's overall model is that comets grow. 
This is a consequence of the solar capacitor model. Since it wasn't abundantly clear from the particular example I found where he was explaining his model, I think around the five-minute mark without looking at the episode, uh, let me summarize it again. Comets are electric vacuum cleaners. That's about as concise as I can make it, and if you think that I'm being flippant, that's actually directly from his bio, which states, quote, his, being McCanny, theoretical work additionally stated that comets were not dirty snowballs, but were large electrical vacuum cleaners in outer space, end quote. That's the bio that he wrote for one of his books that's on his website. The slightly more elaborate version is, first, the sun is a capacitor, which is where a positive and a negative charge are separated by an insulator, such that there is a potential between the two, meaning that it can do work. It's like holding a big rock up in the air. It now has the potential to do something because it can fall and release that energy. In this case, James McCanny says that the sun is a capacitor where the sun itself is negatively charged and the solar wind is positively charged. The second part is that the positively charged solar wind interacts with the negatively charged comets, which decreases the electric potential between the sun and the solar wind, hence his whole you're discharging the solar capacitor claim. The third part is that by attracting positively charged particles to them, comets grow a lot. The problem with this is none of it's correct. The sun itself is a big ball of gas. We have observed the sun's electric and magnetic fields. There is no evidence whatsoever that there is a gigantic overall negative charge to it. But we can also directly measure the solar wind. I talked earlier about comet's tails, where the gas tail is ionized and beholden to the sun's magnetic field because of solar wind particles. We have had a lot of particles and spacecraft in space. That's kind of in the name, spacecraft. Many of them have directly measured the solar wind. Several of them were sent up to specifically measure the solar wind, including its overall charge and the charge of everything in it. What those spacecraft have found is that, yes, individual particles of the solar wind do have positive charges because they've been ionized, again meaning that their electrons have been stripped off, leaving the positively charged nucleus. But those electrons are also in the solar wind. That's actually kind of the whole Apollo moon hoax claim about Van Allen radiation belts are trapping high-energy electrons. You can't have the electrons if the solar wind has a positive charge, but that's actually a separate issue that I'll talk about in the next episode, because among other things, James McCanny believes that the Apollo moon missions were faked. Getting back to the charging of the solar wind, uh, another way to think about this is that you start off with an atom of hydrogen, since that's the most common element in the sun and therefore the rest of the solar system. Hydrogen is overall neutral. It has one proton in the center that's positively charged and one electron orbiting it that's negatively charged. They have the same magnitude of charge, but opposite polarities. Strip them apart and you have positively charged protons and negatively charged electrons, the same number of each. This gives you a net charge of nothing and a net change of nothing from when they had been together in the hydrogen atom as one thing. To give yet another of my infamous contrived analogies, it's as though I have a bunch of peanuts and I break them out of their shells and I put everything into a bowl. That's the solar wind. 
It's as though McCanny is completely ignoring the shells and saying that I only have the seed of the peanut in my bowl, therefore there are no shells. As opposed to actually looking and saying, oh, there are seeds and there are shells. Therefore, if I were to put everything in the bowl together as a whole, I have all parts of the whole nut. As I said, it's a contrived analogy, but hopefully it helped explain this a little bit better and why it's incredibly misleading and possibly he's lying. Again, I, I can't go to the operation of his mind. I can't know if he's lying or just remaining willfully ignorant. But at the very least, it is very misleading or willfully ignorant to say that the solar wind has a net charge because you're only looking at one of the particles that make it up and not everything. With that in mind, that the solar wind is neutral and not negatively charged, I shouldn't even have to get into the idea that comets grow, but I'll at least touch it. Touch on that idea in a good way, not a bad way, in a harassment way. It, I'll touch on the idea that comets grow, which we know they don't. They shrink. There are several observable lines of evidence for this. One is meteor showers. Another is trails of debris seen in space from comets. Another is material observed coming off of comets as opposed to going onto comets. And, of course, the close-up pictures that we have of the surface of comets. If James McCanny were correct, we would not see material coming off of comets. We would never have meteor showers. And when we look at comets, we could not see features that look like erosion and ice vaporizing. We would instead see features that look depositional as if they had been layered on by successive events that deposited material from the solar wind or whatever. So, not only is his mechanism wrong, and can be shown to be wrong in several ways, but there are consequences from the mainstream model and from his model, and the consequences that we observe are all consistent with the mainstream model and not his model. With that in mind, I'm going to end this part one of the two-part series on James McKinney's ideas with specific predictions that he made, ones that were made about a year and a half ago relative to when this episode came out. They are predictions about Comet Ison, more properly known as Comet C-2012-S1. Comet Ison passed relatively close by Mars, though not quite as close as Comet Sighting Spring did a year later. In the lead-up to the event, McCanny said several interesting things, making very specific predictions. For example, on Freedom Slips Radio on October 2012, he said, quote, This is going to be a big one, and it's going to have a major league interaction with Mars. Mars could have its orbit changed. We could see Mars lose its two moons. We could see a new atmosphere on Mars. We will lose sight of Mars for a period of time. There will be terraforming on Mars. We're going to have some electrical alignments, the discharge of the solar capacitor that a comet has to discharge, the Earth has to discharge. You can start to get, for example, Earth weather when this comet is at a great distance. Mars is going to slow down in its orbit. It's going to drop into a lower orbit. It potentially come much closer to Earth. End quote. On other later interviews, such as Coast to Coast AM in March and May of 2013, he adamantly repeated that Comet Ison was going to have electrical discharge interactions with Mars, and that we would certainly see these, and we haven't seen this kind of event for millennia. Uh, it, it's very close. I mean, if the orbit changed a little bit, those they could connect, but uh, if they don't hit directly, Mars is going to... Uh, 
connect electrically, and we're going to see some fireworks, and that's something in the early morning sky. So I encourage people keep uh, tuned uh, to my webpage and information I'll be putting out where to look exactly. So there you go, a fairly specific, broad prediction of electrical fireworks between the comet and Mars based on his model, and nothing happened. It didn't happen with ISON, which passed only 10,843,000 kilometers or 6,737,000 miles from Mars on October 1st, 2013. Nor did it happen a year later with Comet Siding Spring, aka C2013A1, which passed a mere 41,300 kilometers from Mars. For reference, Comet Siding Spring only passed six times the diameter of Mars away from the planet. Really, really close. And yet we saw no electric discharges, nothing at all, even remotely similar to what James McKenney specifically predicted. With that in mind, I think that that's as good a place as any to wrap up this part one of looking into the claims of James McKenney. The take-home message from this episode is that McCanny has a lot of ideas about comets and the electric universe, but all of them are disproven by the evidence, and all observations are fully explainable by the standard model. However, McCanny seems to be immune to such evidence, for he continues to claim this. The situation is that most astronomers today are in total denial of the facts. The facts are that comets are not dirty snowballs. Part 2, which will come out at the beginning of December, will focus on other kinds of claims that Professor McCanny makes, including that the Big Bang is wrong, Venus was a comet, hurricanes come from space, and that the Apollo moon landings were fake. This episode's question for Q&A comes from Carol M., who, when I posted a news story to Facebook that showed a picture of Phobos taken from the surface of Mars that showed Mars shine, uh, Mars shine is light from the sun reflected off of Mars onto the night side of the moon and reflected back off of the night side of the moon to Mars so the rover can photograph it, she asked if we could ever see Mars' inner moon Phobos occult its outer moon, Deimos. The answer is a very neat yes, and I've posted a movie of it. But because of parallax, meaning the angle of viewing, not all of Mars can see an event. It's just like when a bright planet were to pass behind our moon, it's only visible from certain locations on Earth. For Mars, if you were on the equator, it would happen every time Mars, Phobos, and Deimos lined up, which would happen very roughly twice a day. Uh, Phobos goes around Mars once every roughly 0.35 days, but the complication is that Phobos and Deimos do not orbit directly above Mars' equator. Phobos is tilted with an orbital inclination of about 1.08 degrees, while Deimos is tilted with an inclination of about 1.79 degrees. Compared with Earth's moon, which is tilted about mm, 5.2 degrees relative to our equator, it's fairly small, but it's still meaningful. But there's also the size of the objects as seen from Mars that factor in. Phobos appears about one-half to two-thirds as large as our moon does from Earth, at about 0.14 degrees to 0.20 degrees across. 
that's nearly one-sixth of its inclination. So there's a little bit of wiggle room there. Deimos is much smaller, and you would not be able to resolve it as anything larger than a point if you were on the surface of Mars with your unaided eye. Another complicating factor is that because of their proximity to Mars' surface, if you are poleward of about 70.4 degrees latitude, you will never see Phobos. Deimos is a bit more generous because it's farther out, but you will never see it if you're poleward of about 82.7 degrees latitude. Put all this together, and yes, you can see Phobos occult Deimos from Mars' surface, but it doesn't happen every orbit, and even when it does happen, you need to be in a specific area of the planet to see it. With that said, it wraps up this Q&A segment. If you'd like to submit a question for consideration, please use any of the feedback methods available, although the easiest is to submit a question just through email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. For feedback, I've gotten some mixed responses with keeping up the other segments beyond the main one, but most common was relating to feedback that was strongly desired. Along those lines, and since I'm still only about eight months behind in responding to emails, I thought I'd bring in a discussion item that some of us had on Facebook roughly a month ago. I've started to watch Doctor Who. In fact, in the last month, I have watched every episode since the 2005 reboot, including all of the specials. This is partly because it's something fairly mindless, no offense to Whoians or Whoites or whatever you call yourselves, uh, it's fairly mindless entertainment that I can watch slash listen to while working, and also partly because it's something that my significant other likes, so it's something that we can watch together once I got caught up. I started with the latest season, don't worry, no spoilers, um, and there's an episode that's called Kill the Moon. For a few shots or a few scenes, they show the sunlit moon, but there are also stars. I also noticed that you tend to see this on most uh, season premieres and most Christmas specials. And I complained about it on Facebook, because you know, on Facebook nobody ever complains about anything, so I thought that I would start something new. Some people, uh, you, the listeners, some listeners agreed that my complaint was legit. Others wondered why I would choose that to pick on when the entire premise of the show is weird alien space and time travel in a little blue box. That box being smaller on the outside than it is on the inside, to quote Clara in the first uh, Christmas special that she was in. And this is, of course, something that Star Trek Enterprise invented several decades after Doctor Who did. But anyway, the issue for me is decent science when it doesn't matter. Not showing stars would get the science right. It would also show respect for science. When you break the laws of physics and you do it in a way that makes sense, even if it's creating something stupid like a Heisenberg compensator, thank you Star Trek, I can accept that. And I can continue to suspend disbelief and watch a space opera. But it's when the writers or producers or animators or CGI artists or whomever decide that they don't really care enough to get other things right that I consider it lazy on their part, and depending on my mood, even disrespectful. Isaac Asimov, I think, put it best. The most common mistake a science fiction writer makes is to downgrade science. Now, these days particularly, many science fiction writers have very little to do with science, and many science fiction stories have very little to do with science. But whether a science fiction story has science or not, it is impossible to write a good one if you are completely ignorant of science. 
You will make mistakes even when you think science isn't involved. I think that it is important to at least know something about science, whether you're going to put science in or not. It shows. As a matter of fact, that's what makes the difference between Star Trek and all the other science fiction series that I have seen. Star Trek was the only one when whoever it was who was involved, Gene, and I mention no names, insisted on people knowing something about science and preparing the... And it showed, you know. You could see that even when you broke the laws of science, you were doing it intelligently and plausibly. There are other science fiction shows, no names please, in which it is quite clear that the writers and the producer know nothing about science and don't care, and that shows too, and it is impossible to be a self-respecting viewer and accept it. But that's my opinion, and Asimov's, not to use an argument from authority. What are your thoughts? Uh, in terms of announcements, the only one is that I'm still looking for feedback on what you, the listeners, think about these other segments. Uh, they being the new news, very, very rarely, uh, the Q&A, the feedback, puzzler, announcements. Uh, there's a possibility, maybe, of uh, introducing a logical fallacies segment, where the logical fallacy would be using an example of astronomy. Um, in this case, there were actual several logical fallacies discussed in this particular episode, including the, the false dichotomy and the argument from final consequences, but I was thinking of possibly introducing a specific segment on logical fallacies at the end that would be hopefully based on the episode, but otherwise just bringing in random astronomy examples. Uh, let me know what you think about doing that. With that in mind, I'm going to wrap up this rather long episode for a change. Thank you for listening, and that wraps up this topic for the 120th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned something at the same time. For more information about the podcast, you can visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have feedback, please use the feedback form on the website, or send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. It's just the URL, but replace the first period with an at sign. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website. You can thank me for editing out a sneeze just now. Uh, and you can also leave a comment on the blog post for the episode or up on the pace, on the Facebook page for the episode or podcast. I, I really don't ed edit this end matter much, but I will edit out sneezes. You can also send me a tweet directly at pseudo, P-S-E-U-D-O, astro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback, and if you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate the podcast on iTunes or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, tell people.